1: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. My guest today is Ambassador Joyce Leader, author of the new book, From Hope to Horror, Diplomacy and the Making of the Rwandan Genocide. Joyce was Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Rwanda from August of 1991 to April 1994. And in her book, she crafts a narrative of the political and diplomatic conflicts that led up to the genocide. She then proceeds to draw lessons from this conflict, lessons that we can apply to future crises. It's a truly fascinating book, one that fills in our picture of a period in Rwanda when peace seemed possible. I'm thrilled to have a chance to talk with the ambassador about her experience. So with that, Joyce, thanks for being with us and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So before we
1: talk about the book,
2: um, I'd like to just get a have the listeners get a feel for who you are. So, so just uh, how did you be, decide you wanted to be a diplomat? Well, I wanted to do something with that was international. From the time that I was very young, and a friend of mine came back from having when her father was a, uh, uh, a Fulbright scholar teaching in in France, and she mm-hmm. told me at six years old that she dreamed in French, and I've I was hooked <sighs> ever since. <laughs> And so how in an effort! I was just interested in getting into foreign affairs, and it took me a long time to get there. I was, uh, uh, but I finally decided that I was just going to go and try to get into the foreign service, and that would be my way. When I when I was young, there weren't a lot of avenues to do international affairs, especially mm-hmm. for women, and so uh, this was this was my chance.
1: Yeah, I'm intrigued by that. What was there? Something distinctive? About your experience as a woman, rather than a man, was it more or less the same experience? Do you think? What was that like?
2: Well, definitely in terms of the foreign service, uh, when I went in, the women in the foreign service had just uh, had somewhat recently, a few years earlier, uh, filed a suit saying that the uh, mm-hmm. that there, that the uh, application materials were um, gender. Imbalanced. Let's put it that way.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so there, there, there weren't that many women uh, in the foreign service at that time, and certainly not in the higher echelons. It's still, of, of course it's totally changed now. In fact, when I went in, uh, they had just allowed women who had married to come back in, but at their regular, <sighs> at their grade that they had left.
1: And. Uh- and how did you decide you wanted to spend so much of your life in Africa or focused on Africa?
2: Well, I when I was um, coming out of college, I, I was looking again for a way to do something international. I was working uh, in New York, and my job was related to student organization, a student organization that had to do with the United Nations. And so in the process of all that, um, I did find that there were some other ways to, some ways to go overseas. And so I, I, uh, I decided that, but I, so I went and interviewed with this, this group in, in uh, New York. I mean, in in Boston, and they suggested that I go to Land, which hmm. is the f- previous name for Botswana in Southern Africa. And I said, well, why couldn't I go to someplace interesting? Like, um, <laughs> Pakistan or <laughs> Uganda or who knows. But anyway, I went I went back to New York and did a little research and told him that I was fine with Betuwana land. And I had a f- marvelous experience for two years there and then kind of got locked into an Africanist as I was moving it through my career in the Foreign Service. And I'm right but I had also before the Foreign service, I had also done uh, three years as a peace corps staff in uh, what was then called the uh Congo. It was Zaire at that time
1: and am I right you, you worked with um refugees right or 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 refugees when I was in the
2: Foreign service, yes, I was interested in in refugees, and uh uh the first few assignments i couldn't i they wouldn't let me do that because <laughs> that wasn't good for your career. So, anyway, I, I but I finally did get to work with refugees in um, first in Geneva, at the U.S. mission, which is the sort of the center of where the U.S. embassy, where the U.S. diplomatic service links into uh, international refugee activities, and uh, then subsequently, yeah, that that was mostly when I did that. But then in most of my jobs, I also had to deal with. Refugee situations.
1: So I think many of our listeners have have a ten thousand feet understanding of of what happens in an embassy, but but probably don't know much about the day to day life of of somebody uh, who who's a deputy chief of mission. So so what's the job description for for the job that you do, did generically in Rwanda? What what kind of activities did you do?
2: Well, I think that this is partly what I. Tried to convey in Uh them is what it was like to be in that position and to be in Rwanda at that time doing that work. But um, a place like it it differs whether you're in a small embassy like I was Mm. in Rwanda, uh, which is typical of small countries that don't have much impact on U.S. national security, or in a larger embassy. I mean, it was quite different when I was in Nigeria, mm. where I was like one of three people in a political section. In this, in Rwanda, the political section was merged with the consular section, and it was a junior officer mm. who had that position. So, in fact, uh, we only had really three reporting positions, and the other positions at the embassy were administrative, more administrative. So, uh, I was. The the ambassador took on most of the um, relations dealing with the political affairs that were going on in the country. I got uh, involved with the civil society that was going on and had to backstop him. So I knew all, most all of the political figures as well. And uh, then my the the uh, third person did uh, economic affairs. Mm. As well as linking to the um, military, which I did some of as well, but that was mostly in her portfolio or his portfolio. And um, so it was, and you had I had to also sort of get involved with embassy mission-wide activities. We had the United States Information Service, which in the at that time um, took care of 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 the uh, USIS activities and in the country, USIA, and that was mostly journalism and, and uh, exchange act, exchange activities with Rwandan Rwandans and the U.S. Or uh, yeah, and then also we had the USAID there. We had a there were more people, more Americans working for USAID than there were for the embassy Hmm. and uh, it was a bigger operation, but we also would continue to link with um, non-governmental organizations that were American that were there and with all the UN organizations um, that were connected with the kind of work we were doing. Um, UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees was there UNDP, UNDP, so there was a, there were a lot of of people that you would get to know in the Rwandan community, in the international community. Of course, your colleagues, your diplomatic colleagues as well. So we were always um, relating to those people, and we and my and the job. I was a political officer, and so my the the job is basically to understand what's going on in the country as it affects American policy, and then to uh, write that down and convey it to Washington, where the policy-making uh, process resided, and we would feed into that policy-making process through the kinds of reports that we would send back to um, to the country. I mean, to the to the capital, to Washington. Mm-hmm. So you arrived in Rwanda. In, in the summer of
1: 1991, how, how much did you know about the country before you arrived? And, and, and what kind of impression did you have of the country in the first days and weeks after your your arrival?
2: Interestingly enough, I had been to Rwanda hmm. several times. And most of that was in relationship to my work as a Peace Corps Associate Director for Education in Zaire, next door, the neighbor to the the large neighbor to the west, and uh, that was because too, for for uh, uh, mainly because for two years of my time there, I was the I was supervising the refu- the Peace Corps volunteers who were teaching in Rwanda, so I would visit uh, hmm. periodically, not not a lot of times, but I would visit occasionally. And um I got to know Rwanda through the attitudes and the information that I got from the volunteers to a large extent. Um, but I also, in working with people who were in Zaire, uh, we had a training site right on the on the border with Rwanda.
3: Mm.
2: And uh, some of those people had experiences and and uh, even family in, in Rwanda. So I sort of got to know it that way and through the Peace Corps and then later through refugee affairs, I was sent to Rwanda from my job in Geneva um, to do some liaison work with Washington when they had an influx of refugees from Burundi. Uh, just to sort of help them out a little bit. So I had a little knowledge of it. But uh, when I got to Rwanda, um, I was it was quite exciting in the sense that the president had announced that there would be an opening to democratization, to, to democracy. Uh, the government in power had been in... Charge. Uh, it was the, from the Hutu majority government that had been in uh, in the driver's seat for uh, nearly 20 years. They had taken over. They were mostly from the north of Rwanda, and they had taken over in a coup from the previous Hutu government, Hutu majority government that had been in the south, and they were now announcing and opening a year before I got there. Announced this opening to democracy, and that there could be. And then just before I got there, they had legalized uh, multiple political parties. And so many people were, you know, getting involved with with the political process and joining this party or that party that was reestablishing itself from the days of independence. uh, Because the government in charge had been ruling as a one party state for most of those 20 years um, after they... Took over at from in the coup, so uh, there was a lot of excitement in the air. There were new new uh, uh, newspapers were forming to support the democracy process, and uh, particularly the new political parties, which were primarily initially in the uh, opposition to the current government, um, Hutu opposition to the current government. So you had Hutu on both sides of the of the uh, Coin those who were going to support the president and those who were against the president, and uh, so there were a lot of uh, and there were a lot of human rights organizations forming to insist on respect for human rights and to follow up if there were breaches of that uh, with re- with investigations and reports. So there was an awful lot going on. So um, yeah, and it was it was very exciting and it it. Uh, I was getting to know as I got to know people, one of the things that the volunteers said that it was always so hard to get to know mm. Rwandans because they were fairly closed, fairly um, reticent to share much about themselves or the way they were thinking or feeling. And um I began to find that that, you know, not was wasn't always true that a lot of Rwandans were very interested to talk about what was going on and to uh, get to know somebody from the American embassy.
1: One of the really interesting observations you make is, excuse me, for the first months after you arrived, the the peace process, right, because, of course, the RPF had invaded months, several, a while before you arrived, but the peace process and the democratization process were separate tracks.
2: Yes. Yes, I'm intrigued
1: by that. How does how does that happen?
2: Well, the way it happened was that the um, the as this excitement was going on in the capital, and all of this, you know, idea of democratization was was the focus of the political activities in the Capitol. Um as you say it was just about exactly the same time that the president announced the opening to democracy that the RPF the made up mostly of tutsi refugees from uganda the country to the north um were uh had made, had invaded but this war this invasion this what i called a simmering it was a simmering conflict mm-hmm. that was taking place at the border, was not very much on the minds of people in Rwanda in the in the capital. Huh. It was just that little, you know, that that was just a little ple- conflict going on up there, and they weren't paying any attention. And this is particularly uh, the, the the impact of that is that the role that the Tutsi, the minority group in Rwanda and who were the bulwark of this invading group, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, were not part of the equation. Mm. They were not part of the discussion as they were talking about making a, 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 a multi-party government inside Rwanda. They weren't part of the discussion. The Tutsi inside Rwanda were not organized Among themselves, if those who were becoming excited and interested in the opening to democracy were participating in other political parties, primarily one particular particular political party called the Liberal Party, Mm -hmm. they did have a few. uh, They did have at least one uh, human rights organization, which was comprised primarily, almost entirely, almost 100 percent, I would say, of of Tutsi, who were looking at it from the Tutsi perspective as opposed to the, um, the Hutu perspective. But the Hutu re- uh, human rights organizations were actually looking at it from all sides. So the problem, this became a rather significant problem, is that uh, they weren't, they had no voice in this whole democratization mm. process. That is, the Tutsi and the RPF. Which may have something to do with why they took up arms and tried to fight their way back and get a seat at the table, which they did. But it was at the Arusha peace talks. So that's when the Tutsi began to have a voice in the depth democratization process, and that's why they more or less succeeded, or Aimed and did succeed in co-opting the whole the democratization process. Mm-hmm. It sort of was taken out of the hands of the Hutu that were negotiating the outcome in Rwanda, in Kigali, in the capital of Rwanda, by among themselves, and it became the centerpiece of the peace talks in Arusha, which was where they were taking place in Tanzania. Uh, country to the uh, east of Rwanda, so the peace talks were taking when they started taking place, which was a year and a half after the invasion had happened. Um, so that's and that's when they went onto a single track, because at that point in time, the delegation, Rwandan delegation at the peace talks, would have to come in with one voice to, or was expected to come in with one voice to negotiate with, uh, the, the the Rwandan patriotic front.
3: So you, you identify three
1: by my count, three key kind of turning points, all of which are associated with this, um, process of negotiation and, um, and conflict. And so, so I'll like to run, eat through one, them one by one. one. One is the agreement in October of 1992, which which you suggest started to reshape the way parties in Kigali understood um, what their purpose was and and how they needed to act within Rwanda. So how did those early negotiations and, and why did those early negotiations in Arusha m- make such a big difference in the way people in Kigali thought?
2: Well, I think that when um, they, had go- they went into peace negotiations in July of 1962, after, as I say, there had been a uh, coalition government, multi-party government mm-hmm. formed in Rwanda, they had tried to have peace talks earlier than that, but it would never work. And the difference was that with that uh, with that coalition government came a prime minister from the opposition Hutu mm-hmm. party, political party, and a prime and a uh, a prime minister and also a foreign minister. So that the whole tone and temper of negotiations changed, and uh, so they the uh, the the new foreign minister had discussed with directly with the RPF, which had never happened before. Um, they were they had direct talks, but uh, had had direct talks. But the government had maintained that they should be talking to the Ugandans rather than to the RPF. Mm. So now we were seeing the actual Tutsi RPF uh, having its own voice and coming into these negotiations. And the first thing that they did was to uh, set up a ceasefire. And the second thing that they did was to outline some principles that they would abide by uh, during the course of the negotiations. And the third thing got right down to the sharing of political power. Well, now this was probably not what the people in in the Gali thought was gonna happen anyway. So here they were talking about power sharing, and um, they 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 hadn't allowed very much time for it. They thought they could do it in about a month, in September, but uh, by the end of October, they did what I. It was sort of a preliminary um, protocol on power sharing, but the way they the way the the negotiators in Arusha looked at it. They were the protocols were almost law. Hmm. They were a sign of agreement between the two parties, and they were uh, laying down the groundwork for how the the uh, uh, the government, the how Rwanda would go about uh, getting to multi-party elections. So by the end of October, they weren't finished with the negotiations. but the two sides, the government the government side headed by the opposition foreign minister, and the person from Rwanda who was the head the person who was the head of the RPF, who by chance happened to be a Hutu <laughs> who had was had fallen out of favor with the president a long time earlier, much earlier. They had made an agreement that, in essence, would diminish the powers of the president. It would turn the president into more of a figurehead than into a, uh, a person who was intimately involved in the governing of the country. Well, this got back to when this got back to Rwanda to Kigali there was outrage that was at the end of October and November was a very, very difficult month. Mm -hmm. It's uh, when two different, uh, speeches that I do also highlight in the book, Mm -hmm. uh, one by a, the president himself first was by, I think the first one was by the political operative who talked about, uh, sending the, the, uh, Tutsi up the river uh, back to where they came from. There was always this mythology that they had come from Ethiopia. So this was going to send them back to Ethiopia where they came from. And that uh, the, the the whole thing was, a, the whole metaphor was a euphemism for killing the Tutsi and getting rid of them. So that was a pretty, that was pretty strong language at the same and the same month, the president gave a talk, a uh, national And that one was not even, that was not a broadcast speech. That was a speech that just, once it had been, the the words had been stated, it just flew around around the country and everybody knew what had been said. Um, The president spoke to the nation and he called the peace talks, the peace accord, uh, referring to this, protocol that they had that had been signed by the two parties at Borussia, a uh, chiffon de papier a sheet just a scrap huh. of paper and just sort of dismissing the 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 peace talks out of hand and uh so it was it was a very difficult time the peace talks nearly collapsed i learned later from the pr- prime minister who was again was from an opposition party and working closely with the uh, foreign minister who was at the talks. and they, they said that uh, he, he said that they that he had to do work very hard to keep the president engaged in mm-hmm. the peace talks at that point. He was he was uh, the president was convinced that that should be the end of it, that there was just nothing more to be said and nothing more to be gained by proceeding on. One of the things you point out
1: <clears throat> is that while there had been violence in Rwanda for most or all of the time you were there, that this violence really accelerated in the aftermath of this agreement, and especially in January of 1993. What, what did it feel like if to somebody who lived in Rwanda? How, how visible was that violence, and how much did you notice it, and how much did it impact of the way you or other people in Rwanda live their lives.
2: Well, you mentioned January of 1993 and I mentioned that the protocol in October that we were just talking about was an interim mm-hmm. protocol about peace about um power sharing. Well, by January 1993, the people in Arusha, the negotiators in Arusha had signed a final protocol in uh for power sharing, which had they had they had agreed upon at the end of December without the concurrence mm. of the political class in Rwanda. I mean in Kigali. Uh in Kigali, the political parties who were always worked together, most of the, the opposition political parties worked by and large worked together eh, to increase their force against in the opposition against the president and his party which was very dominant in Rwanda in Rwanda and in the in Kigali where it wasn't so dominant in uh, in Arusha but they had made the people in Arusha had made the agreement without these preempting an agreement in the capital and the people in the capital were just scathing about that. They were just really, I mean, if they were upset about the first one, this one was uh, a factor of at, at least 10 times, it huh. could have been much more than that, uh, ang- more angry. And violence was, was spreading throughout the northern part of the country, which is um, uh, d- during this. Once this the, the announcement was made that they'd made an agreement that the the president's political party and the more hardline people in his party were just totally uh, against. And you ask what 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 happened? Well, they had a what people knew the hardline uh, CDR party, which had sp- spun off from the president's party but was still working at this time working with them, made a, a communique that I think it was broadcast on New Year's Eve, about how this was just on un, it totally unacceptable. And they they had um a march, I think, uh in in that time frame, still in December. After it was signed, the, that protocol was signed in early January, January 9th, the the vial the the it there was just an escalation a violent uh, a, a march in in Kigali thousands of people that turned violent and at least two people were killed in the course of that march which included lots of tires being burned uh to make barricades and then burning the tires and um uh it was it was just and we were everybody was hunkered down and the the one of the killings actually took place very close to the peace corps office for that we we uh and to the USAID office um and not far from within a mile or so from the from the embassy so we were very affected by that our our community had already been sensitized to uh, um, to the the march, to the to uh, what was going on, and we had, in fact, just before the peace because there was some escalation of of violence in the center of Kigali just before the peace talks began, when they were still being talked. When well, they were they had been agreed to have they had agreed to have them, they hadn't yet started. And so, from that time, which was the end of May of 1992, we were holding briefings for the embassy for the embassy community um, every couple of weeks, and so we were trying to keep them informed. But uh, of course, we couldn't always be ahead of the of the events. And so, this was this was um, this was one that was extremely. Um, well-known to our community, and this was one that really concerned everybody. Um, There was a little bit of a lull because a human rights organization came in to do an investigation at about the same, the middle of January, and um, that calmed things down for a bit, but as soon as they left, the violence continued in uh, the northern part of the country. So people did know about it, it did affect us, our world was getting smaller and smaller because there was a lot of random violence going on, and by this I mean landmines were laid on roads and could explode under if a truck hit them or something. Uh, there were bombs going off in in uh, transportation, bus transportation, which was used mostly by by Rwandans except for our Peace Corps volunteers who, if they came into the capital, would have to use this kind of transportation. So that worried the community. And um, uh, it was just it was just that, you know, and we used to go, I used to go out to restaurants a lot, um, and we just had to stop going to restaurants oh. because one of the ones that I frequented, uh, a bomb went off underneath somebody's table I wasn't there at that time, thank goodness. One of the nightclubs that some of us used to go to, there was a bomb that went off there. Small ones, they weren't being too damaging, but they were there, and they were giving everybody a sense of insecurity.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: There are at least a couple of reports that you cite by human rights organizations which which at least invoke the word genocide, although they do not um, in your account kind of label this, view this as a, an appropriate label for this, but is that even in your mind at that time that this violence might become more than political or or sporadic and might be genocidal or is that just something that didn't even enter your mind?
2: Well, I have to confess, and I'm not proud of it. That I personally was not thinking in terms of genocide, mm. and this is, and this is despite the fact that there were any number of what of of gen of of massacres that were going on around um, <clears throat> throughout this period of time, right after the uh, RPF invaded way back in October of 1990. There were massacres in the northern part of the country. Um, There were uh, when the when the uh, uh, and and they always happened when there were some steps toward democratization Mm -hmm. or peace. So when they formed when the government formed its uh, just before they announced the formation of the of the multi party government in. Uh, march of nineteen ninety two there was a massacres to the south of Kigali. Then, after they started the talks, the peace talks in arusha uh, and and were going to start to have the the uh, power sharing talks. there were massacres in a town called uh, uh, in a in a town that's by the lake. it was near near the uh, near not too far from. The capital, but it took a long time to get there. The way the roads were, so there were these many massacres all over the country um, at different periods of time. Usually, three hundred killed and fifteen hundred or so could have been um, uh, displaced people. Mm. But somehow, for me, I didn't see that as as escalating to a unified, uh, concerted effort. To destroy an entire group of people, which are the which is required by the genocide convention to determine whether it's a genocide, and also human rights people who looked at it afterwards, who looked at it, and whose reports came uh, much too late, but um, they they were they were unwilling to come out and declare that it was a genocide or declare that it met the terms of the genocide convention, the international genocide convention, they would say that it looked like it could, or it might, or it, you know, there were elements, um, so on and so forth. So, yeah, it was, it's unfortunate that we didn't think of it as that we might've taken a different policy. Um, and I, I feel that, that this is what, partly my book is is aimed at at doing is trying to focus on the fact that that we really needed to do more than just promote and support democracy and and uh, and peace we had to look at the unintended consequences Mm -hmm. of the promotion of genocide and peace because every time there were as i say advances the, the There was increased violence so that there was no amount of better promotion, better democratization that was going to help because mm-hmm. these people were trying to undermine it. The violence was definitely intended as it to undermine the peace and the democratization efforts in, in the country. And so I think better. Tr- this is why I advocate prevention and better training, better understanding of of uh, early warning signs and so that that uh, in future people who are engaged in this kind of conflict these kinds of conflict situations will be ready for something like this and be much more alert to doing preventive diplomacy to doing peace building activities. These words weren't in our lexicon back in the early 90s quite honestly, (laughs) but need to have a lot more um, training and and sensitivity so that another time people would not be as naive or as uh, Mm single-minded as we were uh, and not think in terms of the possibility of a genocide and what kinds of diplomatic activities could we engage in that would help to dissuade uh the people from it we were trying to dissuade them from conflict but we weren't we were doing it by encouraging them to hurry up Mm. and do the and and you know negotiate your democracy negotiate your peace so we needed to have a second track
1: another turning point you point to is the february 1993 offensive of the rpf why why was that so important
2: in February 1993, which was after, at the end of the January from Hell, as I call uh-huh. it, um, where the uh, peace accord—I mean, where the in Arusha, the two sides had signed the um, power-sharing protocol, which the hardliners in Kigali totally rejected because they said it. Uh, so. So um, at the end of that month, or February 8th, beginning of February, um, the negotiators had gone back to to Arusha. My uh, some of us diplomats had gone into the one of the areas where some of the violence had been worst, the worst, and um, and to see what the situation was. It was just on the heels of that um, that the, the, the RPF started to move down from its base, which was by this time inside Rwanda. And, and Rwanda is a very small country, let me mm-hmm. remind you. It's not much bigger than Delaware. And, but 40 miles away at the border was a long way. And so they started moving down from their uh, from their base, which was near the border and and uh, we would be able to hear exploding ordnance at nighttime, daytime anyway they were they seemed like they were wanting to capture Kigali, uh, which they never did. but the offensive seemed to me To be a big mistake because they were, it's because the effect was to really anger the Hutu in the opposition parties who had agreed and who were supporting power sharing, who were saying, these people belong in our country. We've got to, you know, we have Hutu, we have Tutsi in our country. You know, we need to make peace with these folks. We need to have them in our government. We need to share power. But now all of that was being called into question. Why? And it, and not only was it angry, angering the people who already didn't, weren't very happy about sharing power, but it Seemed to convince those who had agreed to share power to back away from that agreement. Mm-hmm. So here we were, in a, here the the situation was, where the president and his party were scathingly, about about this breaking the the peace uh, the um, breaking the ceasefire, moving towards Kigali. And the government forces weren't able to stop them. They needed to call in the French. and uh, so it was it just was, in my view, a provocation mm. that was counterproductive to what they were trying to achieve. when you when asked why they broke this the uh, peace accord of six months, for this offensive, they said it's it was a retaliation for all of the violence hmm. that had been perpetrated against Tutsi during the month of December and January. And there had been a lot, but it was against Hutu as well. It was violence, it was a lot of violence that the government forces and the militia that were beginning to be active. Uh, Political former political party, youth group that were being active as militia. So um, it it was a very it just seemed to me to be very counterproductive. It wasn't until much longer after the uh, uh, when I had a chance to to talk with some some people who were in the Rwandan government at the time who put in. Who suggested that maybe that it wasn't maybe that wasn't so um anodyne their their reasons for for breaking the ceasefire and going on this offensive that it really seemed to them that what they were actually trying to do was to divide the um, Hutu within the country. Hmm to divide the political party, to weaken the political parties within the country. And when I looked at it from that perspective, I would say that was a very likely scenario because that was the point at which the opposition political parties began to realign with the Hutu in power who were opposed to power sharing and after that it seemed like anybody who was any Hutu that was still supporting power sharing was going to become an enemy of the of the people uh, uh, who was going to be labeled as a, a traitor to the Hutu cause it, it built up and built up um, and but it was the beginning there where they were laying the ground where the groundwork, of a realigned Hutu community was laid, and the provocation of the uh, offensive was what they could point to and say that was where we lost all faith in what the in sharing power. We just didn't trust. We ha- we couldn't trust them anymore. We couldn't trust the Tutsi anymore.
1: You comment. In your section on the continued and the ends of the Arusha negotiations that that the Tutsi, the RPF goal was different than uh, than that of the government um, in in a particular way that the Tutsis wanted to revolutionarily reconstruct politics at in in Rwanda. The government was willing to accept evolutionary change, but not revolutionary change. So so I wonder first quickly, you observe, were observer for part of the Arusha talks, so maybe you could say a little bit about what they looked like and felt like, and then, and then talk about um, what role that Arusha agreement played in um,
3: in the run-up toward uh, the the eventual genocide. Well. Um-
2: Evolution versus revolution. It was, it seemed to me that the sense that we were uh, in the early days that I was there and in the whole first couple of years that I was there that the government, that the people inside Rwanda, once the RPF was a factor, were thinking, well, that they would just join, uh, they would the the mm-hmm. RPF would become a political party and would compete as any other, like the would compete like the like the opposition parties would have to compete, but this would make the give the president's party an advantage, because it had been running a uh, one-party state for nearly twenty years, and what is uh, maybe people. In, in, in our government in our uh, country don't understand what a one-party state would mean, but what it means is that the admit that the political party in, in, in question controls everything not only in the government, not only the forces of security, the army, the police, the um, but also the administration. From top to bottom, they're the governors of all the states. They're the the mayors of all the cities. the the They run all of the local party party um, groups. So that from top to bottom, it's run by the party. Well, in Rwanda, gradually, the um, as the multi-party government. Was in charge. They were having to diversify leadership in terms of, of governorships and in, uh, of the of the of the uh, various um, parts of the country, uh, the mayors of the cities, the so on and so forth. They were diversifying so that other pol- people from other political parties were getting into these positions. Um, but they still didn't, the government didn't, the political, the, they still didn't think of themselves as having very, you know, it was more going to be evolutionary. It would happen little by little, but in, in the way that the peace accord was structured, the minority Tutsi were going to have a role in the government, who were the, who were the ministers and in the legislative assembly equal to that of the president's party this was going to be to signal extreme changes and that this is what upset the president and his party so much is that they did not think that the RPF should be given equal footing to them which made the who to opposition parties in the structure of the the next government that was going to set up what the future is going to be this transition. they were heading to a transitional government, but they were saying that that was going to have to um, That they were have they 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 would have to uh, share this par- power and they, the opposition parties would be the um, balance of power. That if they were on the RPF side, then the RPF would be able to control everything. If they were on the president's side, then the president would be able to control everything. But when the peace accord was signed, it absolutely looked like the uh, Hutu opposition parties who had sided with the RPF in many of the decisions at Arusha would be behind them, and would so the president would, as some of its some of his uh, uh, supporters said, the president's party would become a minority party. Mm-hmm. So that's the difference between evolution and revolution, which would really turn everything upside down inside Rwanda. It wasn't going to be a slow change of of power relationships. It was going to be a an abrupt change of power relationships that many in the president's party, uh, who and increasingly of among the Hutu, who had been uh, who were in the opposition, were not ready to accept. Mm-hmm. So what did Arusha look like? You wanted me to ask what Please. did Arusha look like? Yeah,
1: what did it feel like to be there?
2: Well, it was um, it was very interesting um, to be there. And I tried to describe in the book mm-hmm. what it felt like to uh, be an observer um, where the, the uh, RPF side was extremely disciplined and extremely united And the president's, the uh, government side, spanned the gamut from hardliners who were actually to the right of the president uh, in terms of their thinking about how there should be no fraternizing with the RPF at all or sharing power. And those who were, and, and then there was even one Tutsi minister. Going all the way to the other end of the spectrum, uh, not to say that the Tutsi minister was uh, always on the same page as the Tutsi in the RPF, but that that was the sort of gamut on the on the uh, delegation of the um, government. And trying to get them on the same page, we would say, is was like herding cats, <laughs> because it was very they 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 just they were as i've said in the book and i there's no there was no common vision among the no. parties who were struggling vying for power about what the the future of rwanda should look like the rpf had its vi- vision the uh, hutu uh, who had been in the running the government had their vision the hutu opposition had their op- they had their had its um vision and so here was the, op- the, the uh, so I always, I describe it as almost a three-sided mm. negotiating table where you had the Hutu in the government, from the government on one side, the Hutu opposition party people on another side and the RPF on another. And it was kind of like on any one day who would side with who <laughs> and who, so who to determine who would prevail. So um, so it was, and in many cases, the Hutu opposition the led by the foreign minister would make common cause. I wouldn't say they, they trusted or they uh, agreed with, or, not, or not, they trusted um, the, the RPF, but they would make common cause with them because it would advance both of their interests vis-a-vis the president. And his party. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, and the much of the time at Arusha was spent with the various, with the two sides, the government and the RPF, in their own negotiations with among themselves about what their positions would be and what they were talking about at that time, whether it was about, um, uh, Disarmament, or whether it was about merging the armies, or when I was there, it was on the military talks. And um, <clears throat> so the, the, they, and so they would be working alone. I would be writing reports or getting to know the observers from the um, African or the Western countries, or the UN people who were there. Um, <clears throat> and and so and then with the, when they decided that they had something and the facilitator who was the Tanzanians um, who had been named in the uh, the going into the um, peace talks as the facilitator for the talks they would be having private conversations with the two sides or with with us the dip the uh, the diplomatic observers and. we would all be trying to work with them to find compromises so they could move forward. Um, And in the book, I do contrast this with what was going on in Kigali because the diplomats in Kigali were working only with the Hutu side trying to get them to forge agreements among themselves to take to Arusha. And we in Arusha were then trying to get those. what was what was coming from the country to that de, to the government delegation to get the them to harmonize their interests with the with the uh, RPF. So there was a slightly different role for us in Arusha than from the diplomats in in Kigali. Uh, so what was the role of Arusha in the genocide?
1: So. Is that your let, me, question? let me well. Let me rephrase. Um, once Arusha is signed, did you feel hopeful? Did you think that this that that Rwanda was on a path to peace, or were you pessimistic that that these accords would work?
2: Well, that's an interesting way of asking me what I was feeling because I never quite looked at it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, we were hopeful. Let me put it this way. We, our embassy, our ambassador, we were hopeful throughout that it was all going to come to a successful conclusion. This is part of the problem as well, just like we weren't thinking mm-hmm. about genocide. We weren't necessarily thinking of failure. but um when when arusha when arusha after Arusha was signed i I note in the book that there was absolute silence from Kigali mm. after they were signed. The president was there to sign them. The president of the RPF was there to sign them. In the, they were, the signing was took place in Arusha, and the prime minister. Um, and just there was just on the on August fourth, nineteen ninety three. There was in Kigali, I was in Kigali, there was nothing, nothing at all to suggest that anything was different from one day to the next. Finally, the prime minister had to declare a day to celebrate the Arusha success. People in Rwanda were just like, they were just on pins and needles, really. They would, they were like, this isn't going to work. This is just, you know, it's just they're They're not being serious. It's not going to happen. I think in a in a way, they're pessimists by by culture. Mm-hmm. but uh, there was there was just no exuberance, very little exuberance that this was actually going to work. Well, and I did write a cable which has now been declassified that uh, did lay out the fact that the security situation was just still a big problem and the extent to which people the part various parties were really willing and ready to abide by the terms of the agreement just wasn't wasn't clear hmm. but people came back got back to work and there was a lot of activity leading up towards the implementation of the accords. And um, but it just seemed like it and the genocide began six, eight months later Mm -hmm. during those eight months, things got worse and worse and worse. But, you know, it was always like, there's going to be, there's got to be a way out of this. There's got to be a, an exit. There's got to be an off ramp somewhere. And uh, the off ramp kind of never came. Hmm. But um, there there was a lot of energy, much of which was in the international community, that um, that things were going to work. And this, this comes back to another thing that I say is we can never want it more than the people who are fighting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, the diplomats, we can't want it more than the parties themselves do. And and I think we got out a little bit ahead of where the parties themselves were. Mm. But there was one thing after another that was put in front of the, that the parties put in front of themselves that kept implementation from taking place. One after another. First, the parties were splitting and falling apart. They couldn't come up with common lists of people to be in the government or people to be in the parliament. They couldn't come up with, they, they weren't ready to accept the divisions because the whole peace accord rested on the on the uh, unity of the parties. and if if one group said, okay, we're not gonna we're gonna split from that group that we can't agree with anymore, then they would be out lost. They would no longer have a role in the in the uh, implementation because there were, the parties were named that were going to be participants in the government. They were named in the peace accord, mm-hmm. so they were their hands were tied. They had to stick together and try to find a way through it. And then it was, after that, it was the uh, role of the CDR I mentioned earlier. It was the hardline party, and by this time they had totally split from the president, and they were on their own. And they were not accepting the. They had refused to sign the peace accords, and they were mm-hmm. as all the other parties did. So there was a lot of, of, um, yeah, and then and then of course the the, the international peacekeeping force arrives in in uh, Rwanda, and it too becomes a victim of the uh, denigration campaign that, by the uh, private radio at RTLM, and so they they were they were undermining the. Um, the the role of the UN in this, in the, uh, as a peacekeeping force. So there were just a lot of things that were, that were militating against success, but we were still fighting for success, even though it was looking less and less likely. I did, however, I did at one point, I had to, I had to sign up, uh, I had to put in my bid to the state department for my next position huh. because I was supposed to leave anyway. in the summer of 1964 94, but, um, and I said, I'd love, maybe I should stick around and find how the story ends. Huh? Well, I don't think it's ended quite yet, but we'll see. So that's actually what's going to be my,
1: my last substantive question was, and, and let me pause by saying there's lots more in the book than we've had time to get to. And I encourage people to go out and read it. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, story. And, and in particular, it's got a lot of important insights into ways that, um, things that we can learn from, uh, the lessons of, of, of Rwanda and other places and in, in trying to prevent this in the future. But, but I wonder I know that you went back briefly after shortly after the genocide was over. I wonder if you've been back to Rwanda in the years since and and what it feels like to you to go back to this place that you spent so much time in when it was on the verge of collapse.
2: It's interesting that you should ask. I did have a chapter in the book that got out that came out. It <laughs> <laughs> has to do with um, going back, yeah after, after all of this happened. Well, I did that chapters in there, the one about, but later, but much later when I did go back, but I went back right after, and that was one of the hardest assign, assignments that I ever had. I mm-hmm. went back for two weeks to kind of hold down the fort um, before the ambassador came back. Uh, and, and they wanted the embassy, the embassy opened a little prematurely because there was a cholera epidemic in one of the mm-hmm. Refugee camps. After when the when the um, RPF stopped the genocide and, and uh, chased the government forces out of the country, a lot of civilians followed, and they were in camps just across the border in, in Zaire, and they were having cholera. So the, amb- so, the amb- so we were sent we sent back some military. We sent some military out to help um, straighten out the camps of clear clear them of cholera, if possible. Anyway, um so I was back there for 2 weeks and it was really really very hard because so many people had fled and uh new ones were taking their place who were refugees, Tutsi refugees coming back mostly from Burundi. I saw a lot of Burundi license plates. But um and you didn't see a lot of physical damage in, in Kigali itself but uh there were no telephones that worked. Mm-hmm. There was the electricity worked, but um, <clears throat> I don't know if we had it all the time. Made water sort of rationed as well. It was it was hard living, and it was hard to do your job because you couldn't pick up a telephone and call anybody to to set up an appointment. And so people were going around town leaving messages about wanting appointment with so and so and so and so. And it was huh. it was extremely laborious kind of way of operating but um, so anyway it was yeah, so I went back then and it was it was hard. but then I went back was it 10, ten years later mm-hmm. yeah, it was about 10 years after the genocide. I was working with the State Department on uh, having retired already, but I was working with them on an initiative for the region to talk to each other and to work out common solutions to common security problems. And when I went back that time, I, I was very uh it, it was it was just hard. Everybody I met who I knew needed to tell me their story. Um, and I had a lot of, I had a lot of listening to do. And here a lot of difficult stories. Some of them were, were rather heroic, but also still difficult to hear. Um, and... But things were... You know, Rwanda was is a country that has... Um, has really recovered economically from the genocide, but there's still a lot of Uh, discrimination going on, I think, and uh, it is still a place where they're struggling to balance um, security with diplomatic freedoms.
1: Well, that seems an appropriate place to end. You've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. I always Ask guests though, as that's the last thing they do for the show. I wonder if you could suggest to to listeners um a book or a movie or or something that they can read or hear or watch that was meaningful to you somehow in in terms of making this book. What what should my listeners read this weekend?
2: <laughs> well, um I did listen to your previous Uh, interviews, and I realized that this was going to be a question. (laughs) So I have a little list here. Excellent. Uh, Excuse me. Um, I think uh, something that people could listen to, could watch for, um, that I, that, that really moved me was something that I saw when I, uh, when would it have been, about 19, about 2000, 2009, there's a play, a, a a theater play, called Ruined, R-U-I-N-E-D, Ruined. And it's by an a, a writer called Lynn Nottage, N-O-T, I think it's two T's, A-G-E, Lynn Nottage. And it hasn't made the big time. <clears throat> she has done some other plays that that have gone farther that I've, i i was in london and saw her in the headlights in the in the uh headlights the um <laughs> in the theater district lights uh-huh. saw her name up there for a different play but anyway it's about it's really about the um what was going on in which i which is part of the legacy of the genocide uh the the fighting and the 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 in, that's going on still today across the border in in what was Zaire, now the Democratic right. Republic of the Congo. Um, but it's a very powerful, powerful play. Um, of course, there are all the popular movies, Hotel Rwanda, mm-hmm. which um, many of the people in Rwanda feel is has uh, not uh, done justice to the story but I believe is a very good introduction to people who would like to know what kinds of issues people were struggling with at, in that very early part of the genocide, leading up to it. And in the, the early part of the genocide, um, <clears throat> and it is it is a more popularized way of looking at it, but I think that it's that it gives us, the Western viewer, a lot of insight into the kind of thinking that that had that was going on um, and I think that uh well, there's just several books that I used as resources. I don't know if that's the kind of thing you that were resources to me because most of it I wrote out of my you know most most of my memories most of mm-hmm. what I'm recalling but sometimes i needed to get some names or or certain sequences or um and there's there's of course the, the human rights watch alison deforge wrote uh, leave none to tell the story it's a huge book that it's hard would be hard to read front to back mm-hmm. but there's a lot of good stuff in it um, and then several books that have chapters on on uh On Rwanda, another one about the genocide legacy was is uh, Jason Stern's "Dancing with Monsters," Mm -hmm. Uh, about the because after the genocide, um, to get Rwandan government, the Tutsi government that took over twice invaded entered into uh, the Congo to try to first get back people. That their civilians to get them back into Rwanda, and uh, then also to to um, try to eliminate the threat of the former Rwandan army that still existed in the Congo. Um, and that was um, so. Those those are just a few. There's one called aiding violence. Um, by Peter Yuven. that's more mm-hmm. of from an aid perspective. I was going to look up the. There's a book called "Neighbors Killing Neighbors," which is a um, a gal that wrote it as a dissertation, turned, transformed dissertation. And I was going to look her name up, but just the "Neighbors Killing Neighbors." It gives you a very interesting insight into the thinking of the people who were <coughs> on the front lines of killing. During the genocide,
3: I believe her name
1: is Leanne Fuji, and And, I know that because I think she was the second or third interview I ever did on this show. So I appreciate that reminder. That and and I agree, that's a wonderful book. It's a very Uh, good book. The play sounds really interesting. You've now distracted me from um, supervising my children's homework, which I am, in theory, doing this during the pandemic shutdown, Uh, and I instead will go read the. the script, which sounds wonderful, but, but thank you so much for your time. I very much appreciate it. And I know listeners do too. And, um, as I suggested, I think the book is, um, well worth reading and well worth looking for. We've been talking to, um, the ambassador Joyce leader, uh, with the book about her book from hope to horror diplomacy in the making of the Rwandan genocide. Um, and I hope, listeners, you'll join me next time when I'll be speaking to uh, John Roth again as he returns to the show to talk about his, um, his mentors and his teachers and his friends who have helped him think about um, philosophy and mass atrocities. So until then, um, I wish you a happy shutdown and thank you again, Ambassador.
2: Thank you for the opportunity.